are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Matthew's Gospel, in your school for your Bible, page 1016. I want to speak to you on the parable of the grain of mustard seed as we find it in Matthew 13. I began a series on the parables of Matthew, and this is the fourth a message that I brought so far on the parables of the Gospel of Matthew. There are seven such parables in this one chapter. And then there are other parables between uh, chapter 13 and the remaining part of the book that I'll be with as far as I know now, as long as the Lord uh, leads to, to follow this pattern. But I don't know of a better way we could spend our time than uh, dealing with the parables. Our Lord, Lord teaches great and profound truths by and through the parables, you know, and we need to study them and discern them and know the truth that are contained in the parables. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the seven parables of Matthew 13 have to do with the church and with the church dispensation. Now, I'm aware of the fact that in some circles that's not uh, uh, accepted. Uh, there's some that would relegate all seven of these parables to the nation of Israel. And I don't see how in the world that they could be interpreted uh, in relation to Israel. So far as I'm concerned, they must be related to uh, the kingdom of heaven and not Israel. The kingdom of heaven is uh, a, a terminology used to speak of the church age in which we now live. Uh, I suggested to you last week, and I want to make this suggestion again now, if you want an interest in study that you can do in your home sometimes when you're by yourself and you want to read the Bible a bit, uh, you lay these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, down beside these seven parables, and start with the first letter to the church at Ephesus, and relate that to parable number one, the parable of the sower. And the second letter to the church at Smyrna, and relate that to the second parable in Matthew 13, the parable of the tears among the wheat. The word Smyrna means crushed, it means suffering, the martyr's church, the suffering church. And in the second parable, we find the devil entering into the picture, and sowing tears among the wheat, and the Lord commanded that they grow together until the time of the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, not at the harvest, but in the time of the harvest, he would send his reapers forth and sever the tears from among the wheat, and bind the tears and bundle the tears for the inevitable burning of the judgment of God. But the wheat, and the wheat, of course, is a picture of the saved, the born again, he said, I'll gather into my garner. And then the third parable, the parable of the mustard seed, you put that down beside the third letter, the letter to the church at Pergamos. The word Pergamos in Revelation 2 means married. And uh, to me, the letter to the church at Pergamos uh, is a pre-written history of the period in the age of the church when the church became wedded to the state. And you have uh, state religion. I have churches supported by tax money. Uh, that became true after the birth of the Roman Catholic Church in 325 A.D. From 325 A.D. right on straight down to this day, and especially up until the Protestant Reformation, but right down until this day, there are state-supported churches in Europe and so the Middle Eastern uh, nation to the world. In America, our fathers came over here and settled this land to get away from that. 
where we could worship God freely uh, without any interference from the state, and where the church did not receive anything from the state, and consequently the state had no authority over the church. In America, we've never had a state church, praise the Lord. I pray the day will never come when any denomination will become subsidized by the state, by the government. Now, they have that in England. They have that in, in uh, Holland. They have that in Germany. They have that in France. They have that in Italy. Most of the European nations have a state religion, a state church. In some countries, it's the Catholic Church. Others, it's the Episcopalian Church. Others, it's the Presbyterian Church, as in Scotland and Ireland. And in others, it's the Lutheran Church, as in Germany, and on down the line. And in Greece, it's the Greece Orthodox Church, the, uh, the, the Eastern Catholic Church, is what that amounts to. But in America, there is no state church. But to me, the letter to the church at Pergamos, wedded, the word means wedded, uh, fits and dovetails together with the third parable that I want to preach to you about today, the parable of the grain of mustard seed. Now, I said to you earlier that the terminology, the expression of the kingdom of heaven is a reference to the church uh, dispensation uh, and the uh, the kingdom temporal, the kingdom earthly, the kingdom in which both tears and wheat go together. Now, in the kingdom of God, uh, you don't find tears and wheat together. Only angels, only the born again of members of the body and part of the kingdom of God, the eternal not temporal, but eternal kingdom of God. Not earthly, but heavenly as well. But the kingdom of heaven is an earthly uh, sphere of what we call Christendom in our day. And we find uh, the uh, six of these parables beginning with the same expression, and the kingdom of heaven is like unto. Only the first one does not have that terminology. The first one, the parable of the sower, simply says, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. But parable number two, you have uh, the kingdom of heaven. Parable number three, you have the kingdom of heaven. Parable number four, and right straight on through parable number seven, you have the kingdom of heaven. Now, you'll not understand the New Testament until you learn to be able to distinguish between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. If you take the two as identical, then you're going to foul up in your rightly divide in the word of truth. If you can remember three things about uh, the kingdom of heaven, that the kingdom of heaven first is earthly, and second is temporal, and third has tears among the wheat and foolish virgins among the wise. If you can just remember those three things, then you've got the distinction already. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, is heavenly. The kingdom of God is eternal. And in the kingdom of God, there is none that defileth nor worketh abomination. You see, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the terms are not interchangeable, and they're not identical. And you'll not understand the parables unless you know that distinguishing factor between these two uh, terminologies. They, all the three of the all seven of the parables are related to the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of heaven. Now let's look at this third parable, beginning with verse 31 in Matthew 13. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Now before we go any further, let me make mention of this. The first four of these parables were given to the multitude. The last three were given to the disciples. In verse number uh, 36 in the same chapter, 
It says that Jesus set the mountain away and went into the house, and then his disciples came to him privately. And in the privacy of that house, the Lord explained the uh, second parable and then gave the last three only to the twelve, only to the disciples. But the multitudes were included in the first four of these parables. And then another very interesting thing about these parables, only the first two were interpreted by the Lord. In other words, the parable of the sower is so interpreted by the Lord until there is no need for my own interpretation. I have to accept exactly what our Lord said as to the interpretation of the parable of the sower. So the parable of the, of the, of the tears among the wheat is not only given by our Lord, but is interpreted by our Lord as well, beginning with verse number uh, 37 in, in the same chapter, in the same opening, you can see it. Now the last five parables are not interpreted. That means that you and I have to study out and reason out, comparing scripture with scripture, to find the interpretation of parable number three that I'm dealing with today. The last Sunday when I preached on the parable of the tares among the wheat, I read the parable, then I turned to the interpretation and read the interpretation and expounded what our Lord said about the interpretation of parable number two. But I don't have that advantage today. I've, I've, I've read part of the parable, I'm going to read the rest of it, but there is no interpretation. That means that you and I are comparing these seven parables as a unit must come up with an interpretation. And that's what we plan to do in this hour as the Lord leads me. If you have a school for your Bible, you have a great advantage. At the bottom of the page, uh, on, at this opening, you find some uh, some interpretations given of this third parable. And then uh, the uh, um, page earlier, you find other interpretations of these parables. The Scofield Bible is most helpful at this particular point. Verse 31 again, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Now we find from the other parables that the field is a type of the world. In fact, uh, in the explanation or the interpretation of parable number two, uh, Jesus said in verse 38, the field is the world. The field is the world. You see that in the same opening. So if the field is the world in parable number two, then the field is the world in parable number three. It'd be grossly illogical, uh, since our Lord said the field is the world, to make the field in parable number three anything else. And so the man takes the seed, the grain of a mustard seed, and took that seed and sowed it into the world, in the world. And which indeed is the least of all seeds, the mustard seed is the least of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's the greatest among herbs. And in this particular case, becometh a tree, so that the birds of the year come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now, how are we going to interpret that? How can we find what the Lord is saying from these two verses, 31 and 32 in Matthew 13? Well, let's start off and go step by step and see if we can find the interpretation of the message of the parable of the grain of mustard seed. Now, the mustard seed is a reality. None of us would deny that. I'm told, though I'm not basically familiar, primarily familiar, that the least of all the seeds is the mustard seed. And once in a while somebody will come from the old country and they'll bring back with them under glass 
a little mustard seed. You can buy them there as souvenirs. And I've seen those mustard seeds, and they are indeed very, very small. That's the mustard seed. Now that is the seed that the man took. Now as far as I'm concerned, the man in verse, in, uh, in parable number three is the same as the sower in parable number one and two. The man took the mustard seed and sowed the mustard seed into the world, into the field, which is a type of the world. And uh, this seed is called the least of all the seeds. But there's a, a peculiar thing about it. When that mustard seed is grown, whenever seed is grown, it's greatly different. But when a mustard seed is grown, it becomes the greatest, it becomes the greatest of all the herbs. It becomes the largest of all the herbs. Now there are many herbs of various kinds, all kind of herbs. An herb is one species, a tree is another species. An herb is uh, one particular form of uh, wood, whereas a tree is quite another type of wood. But the greatest among all the herbs is produced by the smallest of all the seeds. And when that herb is grown, it becomes the greatest of the herbs, and it becometh a tree. And there you have something that is most unusual. It's not a normal thing or a natural thing that an herb would become a tree. Nor a tree become an herb. The two are entirely different. If you went out into a cornfield, and here is your corn stalks, many of them, you would, you would not expect to find a white pine trunk among the corn stalks. If you were cutting down the corn stalks, and all of a sudden here is a corn stalk that looks like a corn stalk, but it has the body of a white pine, you've got something showing up on your hands. Uh, a corn stalk does not become a white pine. An herb does not ordinarily become a tree. And so in this parable, you have the crossing of the species. And any time you have a crossing of the species, you've got an abnormality. And in this particular case, you've got a deformity and a degeneration. You have a degeneration, not an acceleration, not an, ex an exubilation, but you have a degeneration in this particular case. It's not a normal thing for a species to cross into another kind of species. Uh, this mustard seed is a mustard seed, and though it becomes the greatest of all the herbs, it was intended to remain only an herb. But in the parable, it becometh a tree. And it becometh a tree not just ordinary, but a tree so large that the birds of the air lodge in the branch, find lodging in the branch of the tree thereof, in the branches thereof which is an abnormality. Now that's the parable. Now let me give you what I think the Lord is trying to say in the parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed is a picture of the small, insignificant beginning of the church, the kingdom of heaven, Christendom as we know it in our day. Uh, the church began in an isolated location, in the city of Jerusalem, in fact, the church is initiated in the city of Jerusalem. Only a handful of people relatively in the Middle East were involved. Some were converted. But the church began to spread. It began to move out. In Acts chapter 8, 
uh, the persecution, the wave of persecution scattered the disciples and they went everywhere preaching the resurrection of our Lord. And then chapter 9, you've got the conversion of Paul in the Acts of the Apostles. And Paul goes everywhere preaching and establishing churches. And you find the church begins to spread throughout all that area. But at the height of it, it was only a small movement. It was never a great movement with a majority of people. I think I ought to say right now that the church has never been a majority. The church is not a majority in our day. Has never been. And so far as I know, the church will never be. The Bible does not predict that the church is going to conquer and convert all the world. I hear men talk about it every once in a while, but it's idle talk. It'll never happen. It has never happened, and it shall never happen. In fact, God ordained that the church do and be exactly what it has been, I mean the true church, down through all the years, a minority group, a witnessing group, call, to call out a bride of this world for his name's sake. I, I submit to you the church was never intended to be politically oriented or socially prominent or financially wealthy. God never intended the church to become a great hierarchy with its hands in the pockets of all the peoples of the world, uh, financially speaking. God never intended the church to become great and powerful in the social world. And certainly God never intended the church to become powerful or yoked up with politics in the political world. You have that warning in the third letter in Revelation that I talked about a while ago with the letter to the church at Pergamos. The word means married. That was the day when the church, small in its infancy, became wedded to Rome. And it's then that you have the first crossing of the species from the herb unto a tree. And I submit to you that that was out of God's will. It was not God's purpose. And it's not God's purpose until this day that the church become wedded to the state or to become uh, subsidized by the state or controlled by the state. All of that is man-made and God has nothing to do with it. But the church moved on through the first uh, three centuries and the Catholic Church was born at 325 A.D. the Council of Nicaea. And soon after that, Constantine, the Roman emperor, took the church under politically and subsidized it financially, and the church, the Christian church, became the state church of Rome before the fall of Rome about 425 A.D. And then right on through all the dark ages, she continued to be a part of the state, subsidized by the state, sometimes yoked up with the state in many, many adventures that God had nothing to do with. And then when you come to the Protestant Reformation, uh, one of the problems of the Protestant Reformation is the fact that the Protestant Reformation did not break with the state. Protestants until this day still encourage state-subsidized churches. Now, Luther failed to break in many other ways with the Roman church. But at that particular point, Luther did not go far enough. He should have broken with the state and set up independent, autonomous, free churches like Baptists have always been, but he failed to do so. And Luther's church today, the Lutheran church, is the state religion. 
in the land of Germany and other lands as well, subsidized by the state, which is not God's original purpose or plan at all. And other Protestant movements out of Luther's Reformation, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, have the same convictions. And they also are today, 1980, subsidized by states and state religions in the land of Europe. Now when God sowed the seed in the world, the church had an humble, small beginning. God intended the church to become the greatest of all the herbs. God planned to bless the church that it might become the greatest of all the herbs, and it has become the greatest of all the herbs. But I question whether God intended that the church become a tree, because it crosses the line of the species when it does. And you know, when the church became a great tree, we're told that the fowls of the year find lodging, come and find lodging in that tree. Nowhere in the New Testament are the fowls of the year spoken of in good light. They are a type and a symbol of the devil and the devil's work and the devil's emissaries. And as sure as you live, the church popular, the church established, the church married, the church subsidized, the church socially prominent, the church politically prominent, the church financially prominent in the world today uh, is a lodging place for the fowls of the year to find comfort in a religious institution. Could it be that the reason God planned that the church be only the largest of all the herbs was so that God could correct it and discipline it and purify it? When you get an organization so powerful financially, and so powerful numerically until it cannot be purged or disciplined or cleansed. It's in a dangerous condition. And you've got that problem in the world of the Christian church in our day. In the major denominations in our day, you have that problem. You, you can't purge out the fowls that come and find lodging in the tree that the church has become. I read to the prayer meeting group last Wednesday night uh, a news report out of Brother Bob Gray's paper that came to my desk, and it concerned Baylor University out in Texas, a Southern Baptist institution. They were about to hire a new head of their religion department. Now I would think that a man that would be the head of the religion department of a Baptist university like Baylor ought to be a Bible-believing, God-fearing, clean dedicated man who loves the Lord and stands for God without apology. Wouldn't you agree? But they have as a candidate, according to that article, a man whose name I'll not call, but the article spelled his name out, uh, who doesn't believe in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. He said uh, the first 11 chapters of, of Genesis is mythology and legend, and that Adam was never really a man. But he's only a type of the human race. Don't you say that uh, there was never such a man as Jonah? And that the uh, book of Jonah is only a legend. And Jonah never actually lived at all. And he'd say the same thing about Job. That the book of Job was only a drama. When I was a student at Furman, they gave me the idea that the book of Job was an ancient drama. They said it was the oldest book in the Bible. 
I wonder how they found that information. But they said of all the books in the Bible, Job was the oldest of all, uh, and that Job was an ancient drama, so great, until the people of Israel canonized it and brought it in to the canon of the Old Testament. What about that? I've never found that in print, in any reputable history I've ever read. I don't know where they got that idea from. And therefore, there was never a man named Job. Why, that's only a drama, a play, a fiction, if you please. Like a novel that you might read that has no meaning and has no truth as its foundation. I don't accept that. But this man they're about to make head of the religion department at Baylor University believes that kind of foolishness about the Bible. And uh, they went on to say that some Southern Baptists were up in arms about it and trying to do something about it. But I question whether they'd ever be able to flesh out the fowls that find lodging in the great tree that the church has become. When a tree, when a church becomes so massive and so well organized until a liberal and a modernist cannot be disciplined and fired, it's too well organized. God didn't intend for that. I believe that God intended his church be characterized by purity of doctrine and purity of faith. And when a church gets to a place that it cannot discipline itself, then there's something wrong with that. I, you may disagree with me, but I question whether God ever intended the church to be wealthy. Why would the church find it necessary to be wealthy? Now give me a good reason why the church ought to be wealthy. When the world die, lies in darkness and the pagans need to hear the gospel, how can you account for denomination having millions uh, in reserve, in stocks and bonds and securities. How do you account for that? And I submit to you that every mainline denomination in the Christian world has millions upon millions of dollars in securities and investments of various kinds. Southern Baptists not exempted. When I left the Southern Baptist Convention 28 years ago, Praise God for that day. They then had nearly $12 million invested through the Foreign Mission Board. And that's just one board. That's just one agency. $12 million. And I went to Richmond and visited the Foreign Mission Board office. And I said to one of the personnel, why is it necessary? And I was just a young man then, 37 years old. I'm an old man now. But I said then, why is it necessary that you have $12 million for the Foreign Mission Board in investments. He said, well, an emergency might arise and we'd have to bring our missionaries home. Well, my soul, you can bring a lot of missionaries home for one million instead of 12. That doesn't stand up. That's just not it. The fact is, they want that wealth because with that wealth, they can do as they please. They have become a tree. And they become such a tree until they tell the average Baptist, you'll go jump in the lake. Same thing happened over at Wake Forest University in uh, Western Salem. Baptists built Wake Forest College and then Wake Forest University. And then they moved to Winston Salem and the Reynolds Tobacco Million subsidized them. And a couple of years ago, the trustees of Wake Forest College told the North Carolina State Convention, you go your way, we'll go our way, we don't need you. 
And so they've taken now Wake Forest University away from the North Carolina Baptist State Convention. And the North Carolina State Convention is no longer responsible to support it because they are wealthy in their own right. So I've read the accounts of the newspapers. Now God never intended that. If it's to be a Baptist school, then Baptist people ought to support it and Baptist people ought to control it. And they ought to control it according to the standard of the Scriptures. But you have that. And then I said that to see this. The world's richest institution, the world's greatest tree religiously, is the Roman Catholic Church. There's no institution in the world that has the wealth of the Catholic Church. In bonds, in stocks, in investments, in airlines, in banks, in food uh, processing, in uh, uh, liquor distilleries, in wineries, you name it. The Roman Church has investments around the world. Hotel chains, radio stations, TV stations, around the world. The only airline in Italy, Alitalia, is operated by the Catholic Church. There's no competition in the airlines in Italy. In America, we have competition, but they're just one airline. And so the banks are all controlled by the Roman Church. Wealthy. Has her own postal system. Prints her own stamps. A monarchy situated in the middle of the city of Rome, one mile square called the Vatican. And that's a complete separate kingdom from Italy. The Italian government has nothing to do with the Vatican. The Vatican is a state with a monopoly and with a monarch with a king, and the king is the Roman Pope. The man that came over here the other day and said, "We, I am the back of Christ, could have said, I'm also the monarch of the Vatican. wonder why I didn't say that. I mean, he's the absolute monarch. There's no democracy there. He's the king. He's the monarch of the Vatican. He said, I'm the back of Christ, but he didn't say the other. They conceal their wealth. The tragedy is that the church has become a tree. Organized denominations have become a tree. And becoming a tree, then the wicked fowls of the year come and find lodging in those trees and pervert and upset and disturb and hinder the purity and the simplicity and the autonomy and the independence and the freedom that God intended his people enjoy from that ancient day when the church was initiated until 1980. Now to me, that's what the parable is saying. God sold the mustard seed in the world. It germinated and the church was born and initiated. It grew and increased until it became the largest herb in the world. But then in 325 AD, she became wedded to the snake. The Christian, first Christian denomination. And the Catholic Church is the first uh, so-called Christian denomination in the world. In 1525, you've got the Lutheran denomination born. Soon after, you have the Episcopalian Church born. Soon after, you have the Methodist denomination born. Soon after, you have Northern Baptist born. Soon after, you have Southern Baptist born. But the first denomination born was in 325 at the Council of Nicaea when the Roman Catholic Church was set up. 
and officially the hierarchy was organized. But it was only hours after that until Constantine, the Roman Emperor, took it under arm and made a state religion out of the uh, churches in that day, the Catholic churches in that day. And from that day until this day, the church has become, I'm talking about denominations, the mainline denominations have become a tree. And that's displeasing to God. God never intended that. Now, one other word. Having become a tree, you say, potentially then, the church can convert the world. No, no. You see, having become a tree, it's not a converted world that's going to result. And it's not a better world that's going to result. But it's going to result in, in the fowls of the devil finding lodging and finding protection and finding subsidy and finding freedom to do their wicked deeds under the guise of the clergy or under the garment of the Christian church. If I were to tell you things that have happened in the Christian world in the Dark Ages, 600 to 1200 A.D., some of you would be offended. I couldn't tell you all because of a mixed a congregation. And some of you wouldn't believe it. Some of you have never read Fox Book of Martyrs or The Trail of Blood. And you'd think the preacher was a bigot. Some of them, not I don't think our people are telling it would, but by the radio, folk would say the man's a bigot. The man is beside himself. They wouldn't believe it. The corruption, the moral corruption, the political corruption, if I would tell you about it, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, the, the immorality practiced and, and condoned and sheltered and covered up by the church in the dark ages, you wouldn't believe it. The burning of God's people at a fiery stake tied to a stake with fire put at their feet, burning them alive, not a handful, but thousands upon thousands of them. You wouldn't believe it. You just couldn't believe it. Now, a lot of that's been purged from our history book by the pro-Catholics. But you can find history books, Fox Book of Martyrs is one, that'll tell you the heinousness of these priests that burned my fathers and yours by the thousands at fiery stakes and fed them to wild beasts, cut their bodies asunder, murdered them without mercy. Such atrocities until you wouldn't believe it if I told you, and they're so terrible until I couldn't name them to this congregation. Religion. I mean, the so-called Christian church did that. And they committed these atrocities not against barbarians and heathens and pagans, but against Anabaptists, who are my fathers and your fathers, who believed the Bible to the degree that they would not accept a priest, and they demanded their freedom. And they believed the Bible. And they were put to death, lest they recant. And thousands of them said, I must die, I cannot recant. And they paid with their own blood, sealed their testimony with their own blood, 
Preacher, you mean that happened? Every person under the sound of my voice owes it to yourself to get a copy of Fox Book of Martyrs. If you don't have one available, if you'll write to me, I'll get one for you. And if you in this auditorium don't have Fox Book of Martyrs available, you can go to our library right here in our Bible college and get a copy. You sit down and read. You would not read but a hundred pages. The thing has five hundred pages. But a hundred pages will turn your stomach. And you say, how in the world could religion ever condone a thing like that? It became a tree. And the fowls of the devil find logic. And you can't get them out. They have power. They have authority. And you can't displace them. Now the church, God planned to be a small start and the largest of the herbs. And nothing more than that. God never designed and never promises anywhere in the Bible that the church is going to convert the world. Don't forget that. But God did put the church into the world to be a witness and that we've done. By the grace of God, we've been a witness. And all those that died at fiery stakes, their death, cry out a witness to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. God help us to be true to the church, simple. The church, the mustard seed. The church, free. The church, autonomous. The church, dependent upon God and not on interest money, but dependent upon God. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust.